Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, everybody at home. It is wonderful to see so many people here today. It's a great blessing to be able to worship in spirit and in truth, not only online, but also in person. Last week, when we looked at looking up and getting ready, it is easy for us to be caught up in our lives and where doubts or where distractions or, or even complaints, complacencies can creep in in our relationship with Jesus and in our view of life. And one of the things I think is a great gift that God has given us is to be blessed with the capacity to combat such doubts and distractions and complacencies because he has granted us a divine understanding of what he is doing in the world. He has given us an insight into his plan regarding these last days, regarding the context that we find ourselves in. Now, people have made the observation regarding these last days because we often think of doom and gloom and, and fear and the end of the world. But just to provide a bit of clarity, see, the writers in the New Testament identified their current context as being a part of the last days. And I just want to explain to you before we get into the scriptures today what these last days or how these last days are actually viewed. If you recall last week, I showed you three pictures of amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. And you'll notice on each of those pictures that the last days actually began at the resurrection, or at, should I say the ascension of Christ, or more, sort of more clarification, at the birth of the church. And so from the birth of the church all the way throughout our current history, this current church age, that whole, I guess you could say, time frame, that whole dispensation, as some theologians put it, is referred to as the last days. They mark this out because in Acts chapter 2, in verses 17 to 21, Peter quotes Joel, the prophet Joel, and he says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, since a day is, as with the Lord, a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, you could say that it's only been a couple of days since the Lord had left. But you'll notice as you read through the scriptures, each New Testament writer has a personal relevance applied to them when they look at these last days. They, they associate with the things, the events, the stuff that's taking place around them as participating in the last days themselves. They were experienced in the last days as well because they were a part of the last days. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-5, to 5, Paul writes, describing in the last days what will take place. This, this attitude 
of selfishness, this attitude of self-absorption, this attitude of self-centeredness, because you read how people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, etc., etc., lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And at the end of verse 5, he says, have nothing to do with such people. If you want to have a listen on the 2nd of February this year, we actually have a sermon called Living in the Last Days. If you have the podcast that you subscribe to, Grace Christian Church Sermons, the 2nd of February is that sermon there that looks at that specific passage. But there is this attitude that is prevalent, not only in Paul's day, but also today. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and we touched on this last week, you have not only this attitude of selfishness, but this atmosphere of doubt. In verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter 3, we read, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So now there's this atmosphere of doubt that creeps in as well. And it's a view that is gaining traction in the church as this doubt and this skepticism is becoming more mainstream. And what's of note is that because you have this attitude of selfishness, and this atmosphere of doubt that's being created, the result is, as it talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, an apostasy. A falling away of the truth and of the values and of the person and of the things of God. We read in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Now, I know that throughout history there has been this attitude of selfishness and self-absorption with a, a culture, especially today, that can click on the interwebs and find anything and everything to justify an argument or a particular stance that you want to take against the person of Jesus Christ and in the denial of God. That, that attitude of selfishness, the fact that, that, it, that the longer it takes, especially when things are going the wrong way, especially when there is discontent, when there is impatience, when there is doubt that gains momentum within this life, that does arise, this atmosphere of doubt within our own lives. And so we consume ourselves with living in this current time. And this then results, whether for the sake of ease, whether for the sake of accommodation of self, whether in response to the hurt of disappointment experienced, there can be this forsaking of the Lord which appears to be more common now today than it has been in the past. So what then can we do to combat such attitude, to combat such doubt, to combat such apostasy within our own hearts? And that's what I want us to look at today. So as we open in a word of prayer, please turn to the letter of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, as we look at what the scriptures have to share with us today about what the Lord is doing. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. We thank you for such a sure foundation that is Jesus Christ and that we are secure in him. And we pray now as we open your scriptures that by your spirit you will minister to our hearts, that you will open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are held within your law and that the things that we learn, the things that we draw from will not fall on hearts of stone, but hearts of good soil that will bring forth change, that will bring forth fruit, that will bring glory to your name. So we ask now that you will speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Jude. Jude, we are told, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Tradition says that he came to know Christ as Savior after the resurrection of Christ. After the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we are told that Jude put his faith in Christ. I mean, think about it. I mean, he's your big brother. He's like perfect in every way. Sort of like we have this whole thing of, you know, why can't you be more like Joe? Why can't you be more like Jonah? Well, imagine this. Why can't you be more like Jesus? That's a pretty thing to measure, a pretty big thing to measure up to. But he came to know the person of Christ, and, and Jude was concerned with the Christians that he was involved with, that they might be drawn away from the truth of the gospel by these false teachers who were promoting a life of easy grace, of easy believism of a license, that grace is a license to sin. So he urged them in verse 3 of Jude 1, contend for the faith. And he does this, and after he talks about contending for the faith, he then makes this comparison about the consequences of the ungodly in verses 3 through to 13. Then he speaks about the coming judgment of the Lord and the promise of his return in verses 14 to 16. And with that, we look at now, in verses 17 to 21, what I call the call for us to understand God's plan, to understand what God is doing in light of that return, which is this morning's reading. So you start at verse 17 with me. We read this. But, dear friends... Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So after sharing about sin and its consequences, after pointing them to Christ's return, as proclaimed by Enoch, actually, he begins this call to understanding by charging them to do three things. These are the three things. One, remember and understand God's timetable. Remember and understand God's timetable. In verse 17 we read, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Now the reason 
I say timetable is because what he links here in verse 17 follows into what he talks about in verses 18 and 19 in the last times. But before I want to clarify that, I want to talk about a couple of things. When he says, remember what the apostles, what is an apostle? And in one sense, we're all apostles. In one sense, we're all apostles because the word apostle merely means a sent one. A sent one with a specific message. In another sense, we are not apostles because we don't meet the criteria that Peter laid out for us in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, I believe. It says this, that this was in the replacement of Judas as an apostle. It says somebody who was going to take that office was necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us, meaning the disciples. The whole time the Lord Jesus was among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, from one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So that was the criteria. They needed somebody who has witnessed the, the, the baptism of Christ, was there and saw the resurrected Christ. Now, Paul refers to himself as one born out of due time in 1 Corinthians 15.8. That's because he began with the risen Christ when he encountered him on the road that is straight to Damascus. So these were men and women who followed Jesus, who lived with Jesus. And as John put it in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, these were people who heard, who had seen with their eyes, who had looked at and had handled with their hands. In 1 John 1, 1. So these people, these apostles, they had credibility as being a part of the Lord's personal, for want of a better word, entourage. Okay, his personal entourage. And it resulted in them being able to convey the plans of God directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. That's why they had this credibility. So the likes of, say, Matthew 24, when we looked at last week, when they ask him, tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age in verse 2 of chapter, of chapter 24 of Matthew. And then Jesus gives those, those signs, how there'll be false messiahs, how there'll be wars and rumors of wars, how there'll be kingdom rise against kingdom, and, and how these are the beginning of birth pains, he says. After those birth pains, we read further on about what these times are. In verse 9, we read about persecution. In verse 10, we read about betrayal. In verse 11, we read about the prophets with their deception. In verse 12, we read about this increase of wickedness and this decrease of love and so on and so on and so on. So these words were told by the apostles to the people of God in order for the people of God to be about their mission while they awaited the Lord's return. To remind it of truths like this, by these apostles who exhorted us to walk in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 1.5, of, of building a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, of looking for a a new and better country where God is not ashamed to be called their God in Hebrews eleven sixteen, 
that as new creations, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are to be walking in the newness of life. Romans 6, 4, having our minds set on things above. Colossians 3, 2, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 3, preaching the word, being instant in season and out of season. 2 Timothy 4, 2. That we, as the people of God, will be, as the Lord Jesus called us, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, a light on a lampstand that gives light to all. That's what we are to be. This is what we are called to live as. And as such instructions are given by these men of God, not just because it's our basic instructions before we leave earth, but also for our own personal readiness while we wait for Christ's coming, which is important that you and I then, while we wait, is to not just be knowledgeable of what God's timetable is, but be understanding of what God's timetable is. In Proverbs 4 verse 7 in the King James, we read this, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding, which is a great truth. I remember hearing this many years ago from a kid at school, the difference between knowing something and understanding it, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I guess you could associate it in this way, how I guess you could say knowledge or knowing something is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Understanding is knowing not to put a tomato in fruit salad. That's the difference. You can know something, but it's irrelevant unless you understand it. Thus, when we have, like we know, we know we are to live holy because he is holy. We know we are to live sanctified and to abstain from sexual immorality. We know we are to walk worthy of the Lord because, yes, we know these things, but the understanding of it is then reflected in what we choose to do and how we choose to live, to understand God is working to a plan, yes, which we know, but then because we understand that by his spirit, we are able to exercise that knowledge in the way we live as well. That's why, therefore, we are to secondly recognize and understand our time. In verses 18 and 19, we read this. They, meaning the apostles, said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. When reading the passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-4, to 4, it appears that as shared before, Paul saw himself as being a part of these last days. Because people now were exactly the same way back then. They were lovers of themselves. Should I say they are lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Compare that today, people are even more so now. People are even more boastful, more proud, more abusive. Children are openly disobedient to their parents. They are ungrateful. They are unholy. Society as a whole, and especially manifest during this pandemic, they are without love. They are unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, and conceited. And with, and with everything available to us at the push of a button, at the click of a mouse, at a, at a switch, at a swipe of our phone, there has been a culture that has arisen today where people are more lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I see, I see the differences between today and Paul's day. This is where I think we differ in regards our view of these last days. And as well as different eras of history, actually, the world has become such a smaller place and it is continuing to shrink. I'm at home right now on your screen talking to you right now. Hello. You couldn't have done this 20 years ago. I, if you're on your phone, uh, I'm on your phone, should I say, which is terrible. If I, I could be on your phone right now, and if you're looking at your phone in the congregation... I hope you're looking at me. But you could, I could be on a bus right now in the palm of your hand whilst I share, with this, share this with you right now. We can send information across the other side of the world with a click of the button. Everybody is an expert in information by Googling it on the internet. We have now this ability to talk with people. I can talk with my family and see them face-to-face on my computer screen doing a Zoom call. This is what's happening with us right now. There are these massive advancements where the world is shrinking. There are technologies around. There are medical advancements. There are ethical dilemmas that 20 years ago were but a theory, that 30 years ago were but a thought, that 40 years ago were but a dream. That 50 years ago were science fiction legends. This is what's happening today. And, and to top it off, and to top it off, there is this growing spirit because people can find out information about anything they want to believe. We have this growing spirit that is rising of the Antichrist within the world today. Not even within the world, but even within the church. If you've got your Bibles, please just quickly turn to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 22. I think I'll start at verse 21. It says this. Okay, 20. Here we are. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. We have this prevailing spirit of the Antichrist that has arisen in the world today, in society today, and even in the church today. And how does that happen? There are two things, two identifying factors that Jude lays out here. That when people are governed by their desires, if it feels good, do it. How people allow the whims of fancy to govern what is said, what is done, and what is stood for. Classic example is how churches will change their stance on a particular lifestyle for the sake of being called forward-thinking and progressive at the cost of biblical truth and biblical standards and biblical values. We have churches now, in order not to offend members of the congregation, that were fearful to call out sinful behavior or sinful living. 
We have, for the sake of increasing numbers within a church, people who are willing to water down the gospel to make it more palatable to a person's life, as opposed to standing for holiness and righteousness and purity. That's why he says these attitudes are recognized by one, people who divide. People who divide. Unity, oneness of mind, heart, and goal was the hallmark of the early church. You see this evident even at the birth of the church, how it was once the people of God were of one mind, of one accord, how they fellowshiped, how they broke bread, how they were one in prayer. It was then that the Spirit fell upon them. It was then that the church was born. That was the identifying factor of the early church, their oneness in Christ. Thus, the identifying marker of somebody who is not of the Spirit of God is one who seeks to divide, one who seeks for their own ungodly desires, one who seeks to have a position of power, to gain a place of popularity, to have an abundance of possessions, to have around them this own little gathering. If you have... Sorry, if you look at 3 John, you have an example by a guy named Diotrephes. Diotrephes was a guy who wanted to be a leader within the church, and thus he caused division, seeking to basically exclude the Apostle Paul from being involved with the church. He caused trouble as he sought to attain power and influence within that church. Now, you've got to ask yourself something. I know in Matthew Chapter 16, after Peter made the great proclamation when Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, and I tell you, you're Peter. And this is great proclamation. And then soon after, when Jesus says he's got to go into Jerusalem and, and be arrested and be crucified, Peter once again goes up there and says, no, you can't do that. And he basically takes Christ aside and seeks to tell him off. Jesus says to him these words, get Behind me, Satan. This is something that a preacher I heard once say when I was back in New Zealand. And he actually said, sometimes even the most well-meaning Christian can be doing the work of the enemy. Even the most well-meaning Christian can be doing the work of the enemy. Are you one who divides with your good intentions? Or are you one that builds up the people of God for the glory of God? Gossip. As a classic case. Your own criticisms, classic case. Look, I'm not saying, I, and, and please, if I, I'm, I'm the first, I'm the first to say, if you see something that I'm doing wrong, please come and tell me. I'm the first to say, if, I, if I've done something to upset, to offend, to, to, to discourage, please come and tell me. I'd much rather you tell me than me continuing to do what I do. But if you take that resentment you have for me because of something I've done, and you start telling people about it, Joe did this. Look at Joe. Look at how shiny his head is. Look at Joe. Hey, he thinks he's so funny. Or Joe this, or Joe that, or Joe said he'd do this and he didn't. If you start going around talking to other people, you know what you're doing there? You're doing the work of Satan. You're doing the work of the enemy. That's what you're doing. People who divide are one of the markers that Jude lays out here. Not only people who divide, but people who follow mere natural instincts. And this is becoming more prevalent in the 21st century this 21st century culture, it, it can be worded like this. Be true to yourself. You hear that all the time. Be true to yourself. 
Follow your instincts. The problem is, if everybody just followed their instincts, if everyone was just true to themselves, one, I think we'd be worse off for it, or two, nothing will get done at all. Why? Because we're lazy. And look at this. Abraham followed his mere natural instincts when he lied about Sarah being his wife in Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 to 13. Moses followed his mere natural instincts when he got angry and acted rashly in disobeying God and striking the rock instead of speaking to it in Numbers 20, verse 11. Samson followed his mere natural instincts a lot. As you read in Judges 14, when he did all these things to satisfy his own carnal nature, or should I say his own natural instincts. Jeroboam followed his own natural instincts to sort of cover for his insecurities when he led Israel to an apostate era in 1 Kings 12, 26 to 33. Judas followed his own natural instincts when he got caught up with the money bag and betrayed Christ. Peter followed his own mere natural instincts when he denied Jesus. These are all examples of people who allowed natural instincts to govern their actions. And Jew uses this as an example of what it's like, of people who follow. It's that whole, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. That's the mentality of the culture today. And Jude uses this description to say that these are people who do not have the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that you can't make a mistake. I'm not saying that you can't fail, because I fail all the time. What I am saying here, though, is that the difference between, say, David who repented Abraham was dealt with, the various people that God dealt with, it involved them repenting, that it's not a consistent character, characteristic or a consistent living out and conduct that is done by them day by day by day or moment after moment. That's the difference here. Jude says those who do not have the Spirit, it's not those who have a mistake, those who live this way and allow their natural instincts to govern every single situation that they're in, as opposed to allow the Spirit of God to work in their hearts. This is why 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, we read this. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. Verse 13, their idea, sorry, verse 14, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. By contrast, though, as we remember and understand God's timetable, as well as recognize and understand our times, the value and importance for us to remain and to understand in Christ is dramatically increased. We read in verses 20 and 21 this, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, to bring you eternal life. Verse 21 has these three words, as we wait, as we wait. Our time is not to be wasted. 
we are given three clear instructions regarding of what we can be doing that would be productive in our Christian lives. And what I like about these three clear instructions is that they are very doable. We can, we can do these things in the power of Christ because the focus of these three instructions are our personal responsibility, our personal accountability. So as we wait, we read this, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We are told that if we want a good career, we are to increase our skill set, to build our skill set. We are told that if you want to get strong, we build muscle. We are told we want to get further in life, we build relationships. We are told that as a church, we are to, if we want to increase unity in the church, or to build unity in the church, that we build up one another. Jude takes it a step further by saying that we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Once again, the element here is that of personal choice and personal responsibility in our walk with Jesus. Now, I know things can be difficult, and I know that we can struggle at times, especially when we can't make sense of what is going on around us. But this is the same mentality that Paul had in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which means this that we are to take the tools that have been made available to us and utilize those tools in each of our lives personally to build ourselves up, to deepen our relationship, to develop our intimacy with the Lord. Because what happens as we develop our relationship with the Lord, that in turn affects the lives of those around us. Now, it's, it's, it's like playing a game. I know all my illustrations are sports-related. I'm sorry. I don't know much. But I love playing sport. But I remember when I was playing rugby, and everybody had their specific position. If one guy, there was one guy in our team who was quite unfit, and it made the rest of the team suffer because of his un being unfit. I mean, he was a large guy. He was like 6'4", six, six, but he was big. He was big, so he was a bit slow around the field. But when everybody was able to fulfill their positions to the best of their ability, it made the team an unstoppable force. We still lost, yes, but we were united as we sought that same goal. So it is here within the people of God that as we develop ourselves, we, are to, we, we will affect and we will bless and we will encourage each other in our walks with the Lord. So that means then we are to strengthen our own spiritual muscles. We are to develop our own relationship with the Lord, meaning this, that we, we take all forms of prayer and spend time in prayer with the Lord. That we, we have each opportunity, not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together, each opportunity to fellowship. That we spend time reading the Bible daily and allowing the Word of God to saturate our souls. That we partake of not only corporate worship, but individual worship, as we honour him and what we do, the acknowledgement of who he is. That we, we step out and encourage other people's faith as well as our own faith by reaching out to the lost with the gospel. 
not only having those tools, but the fact that we have made available to us to be equipped with the armor of God, to put on the helmet of salvation, to have the breastplate of righteousness, to have the belt of truth in our shoes, our, our, our shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, to be holding our shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, to equip ourselves for the warfare that we are a part of. I mean, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, on the contrary, that we have divine power to demolish strongholds because our weapons are not of this world. That by stepping out of faith and claiming each of these promises, of the, each of the promises of God and discovering the beauty of God's faithfulness, we are built up dependent upon Him. And that it's not dependent upon what others are or are not doing then such a testimony spurs us on for more, for the, to do more for the Lord. So, build yourselves up. Second thing he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. There is a profound difference between praying and praying. There is a profound difference between uttering words in a prayer and earnest communion in prayer. Jono touched on this when he spoke several weeks ago from 1 Thessalonians 5, that a part of God's will in Christ Jesus concerning us is that we pray without ceasing. To be aware, to be alert, and to acknowledge God's working in each moment of our lives. You and I both know how, how the earnest of prayers comes out from the depths of great need or great sorrow. You know this. You've seen the difference when you, you're praying due to great need and praying because it's something you know you should be doing. That in the helplessness of our circumstance, with our hands tied behind our backs, then the earnestness of our hearts cry out. We raise our hands in prayer and, and we want God to move in people's lives. But the greatest way that prayer is birthed the greatest way that prayer comes forth is the recognition and acknowledgement of our need for Him. Of our need for Him to move. You know you have loved ones that don't know the Lord. And the only way their heart changes is if you've been praying for them earnestly. You might have a sick family member to pray for them earnestly. You might have a work colleague that's going through difficulty, and you notice how different your prayer is when there's this connection of need. The problem is a lot of us don't recognize that need until we're at the end of our rope. And I pray that God reveals to us, doesn't matter how good our life is going, doesn't matter how things, how sweet things are, even in this pandemic, that God will show us our need for him. We are told without him, we can do nothing. But once that need is acknowledged, that need for him, this, the prayer in the Spirit comes forth. We are told in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And there's the key to our prayer life, that we may pray in accordance to God's will. 
Not only from need, but in accordance to God's will. James chapter 4 verse 3 says that you ask and receive not because you ask amiss, seeking to consume it upon your own lusts. More often than not, our prayers are, Lord, give me. Lord, do for me. Lord, take me. We, we pray in such a way that we don't pray in accordance with God's will. Alan Redpath had a wonderful quote. He said this, Before we can pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. Before we can pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. That's the attitude that is needed as we pray in dependence upon him. So not only are we to pray in the Spirit, not only are we to build ourselves, we are also to keep ourselves in the love of God. With the same resolve that the leper of Matthew 8 had to go in front of everybody and lay himself down before the feet of Christ, with the same resolve and determination of the sinful woman who went into a Pharisee's house to anoint the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, with the same eagerness of Zacchaeus, who climbed the tree to just catch a glimpse of him in Luke 19, so too are we charged to keep ourselves in the love of God. To abide or to make our dwelling in him, John 15, 5. For as I shared, apart from him, we can do nothing. To hide in the shadow of his wings, Psalm 57, 1, for there I find refuge. For whoever lives in love, as in God's love, God lives in them and they in God. 1 John 4, 16. There's a game that I used to play with a whole bunch of kids at a campsite. We had this really big, thick tug-of-war rope. And one day I had to create a game. So I don't know, I might play it with the kids upstairs one, uh, one, one, one Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah, thanks Ellie for that one. So I, what you do is you, and you made this big circle. You made this big circle. And it would have been maybe a good maybe four metre diameter. That's how long the rope was. A four metre diameter. And then all the guys would get in the middle of the circle. Now the game was called King of the Ring. And all it was, was when I said go, you had to push everybody out of the ring. Out of the ring. That, that's all it was. And so I'm just grabbing kids and I'm like, throwing them here and throwing them. It was fun. More often than not that I, I won. So, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad there was no actual film of it because I could probably, you know, I caused a lot of damage to uh, young kids at that time. But then when I played with people that were a bit more my size, oh, that was fun. That was just like, I still won. But... It was, but yeah, I had to keep myself in the ring. When people ganged up on me, I keep myself in the ring. When people all dogpiled on me and tried to move me out, I kept myself in the ring. I fought to stay in the ring. And I won. I am told here, I am to keep myself in the love of God. If that rope represented the love of God, I am to stay within that ring. To stay in the middle of God's love. That it doesn't matter what hardship seeks to push me up. doesn't matter what enemy seeks to push me up. doesn't matter what person seeks to push me up. I will stay within God's love. Demonstrated to me in Jesus Christ. Who died for me and rose again. I will stay in the love of God. 
That when things I don't understand that seek to discourage me and push me out, I will stay there. That when things happen to my family that I don't understand, I will stay there. That's what we are told to do. To keep ourselves in the love of God. To hold firmly to his love that is given to us in Christ. To pray in the Holy Spirit at all times and in all manners of prayer. To be building myself up in my most holy faith with the Lord. These are what we are told we can be doing as we wait. As we look to the heavens for the return of the Lord. That is the key to understanding God's plan because the plan is laid out for us, especially in connection to these last days, in these end times. We are to remember and remind ourselves of God's greater plan and final redemption and understand that he is working to his timetable. You read Ecclesiastes 3. I'll read you verse 1 and 17. We read this. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Verse 17, God will bring judgment both to the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Therefore, if we remember and understand God's timetable, we, by God's grace, have been given a privileged insight into that timetable. And given indicators laid out for us to recognize the times that we are in and to understand how close we are to his return. That we are to be, as Titus 3.13 says, waiting for that blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That our strength and our security, we are to hold on to as we remain in him, understanding what he is doing. Pardon me. To understand that the, the security we have being held within the hand of God and to remain in Christ, knowing and understanding that nothing can pluck us from his hand. Romans 8, 35a and 38 and 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced, verse 38, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what you and I are called to do as we wait for the return of the Lord. So I pray, I pray that as you leave here today, that you will remember and understand God's timetable, that you will recognize and understand the times that we are in, and that you will remain and understand who you and I are in Christ. So if you just like to be upstanding, I'll close in the word of prayer. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you to spend time in the scriptures and have a look at the truths that God has laid upon our hearts this morning.
May it not fall on deaf ears, but may it transform our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you so much for the way you have worked, not only within times past, but even times now. We thank you for the insights that you've given us into your timetable. And I pray that you will give us the ability tonight to remember that you're working to a timetable, but understand where we are in that timetable. Father, I pray that you would encourage us and help us to recognize the times that are going on around us and live as a light shining as unto you. That as we wait, we'll be about building ourselves up. That as we wait, we'll be praying in the Holy Spirit. That as we wait, that we will keep ourselves in your love. Father, we need you so much to work in each of our lives. May we, may we not forget the grace that has been given to us in Christ. And may we live in accordance with your desires and with your heart. So, Father, please work within each of our lives, even now. But you, dear brothers and sisters, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his glorious presence without fault or, and with great joy. To you, our only God and Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Christ our Lord before all ages, both now and forever. Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. Have a blessed day. Thank you very much, everybody at home. Thank you very much, Brendan. <laughs> See you guys next week. God bless. Take care.